components, such as in the feeding of the 5,000 or Sermon on the Mount. Now, they knew how to project their voices, that's for sure, and people probably were more attentive. But I'm happy for microphones. <laughs> Pastor Steve is away this Sunday, and um, so, it, so I'm going to be sharing with you. Now, for the past uh, several weeks, he's been sharing about spiritual gifts, and we've been doing a, a series on spiritual gifts. And if you haven't uh, heard all of these messages, I would encourage you to go to the website because they're all available online. And, um, and they're quite uh, rich in content and um, just excellent, I believe, in, in terms of as a challenge to us personally to learn to use the spiritual gifts that God has given us. There's so many things that um, he's been speaking about that I feel uh, con- convicted of on a personal level, but um, there's a few basic general points, and, and I just want to put what I'm going to speak of in context of, of course, everything he's been saying for the last several weeks, because I'm also going to speak somewhat on this theme. See, one, one of the things that's most stood out to me is, as we've been discussing spiritual gifts is that God actually wants to speak. And not only does he want to speak, he wants to speak to us personally. And he wants to encourage this so that we would use the spiritual gifts that he's given us in order to touch other people with our lives. And I think that's been the theme that Pastor Stephen has really been focusing on over the past several weeks, is that God really does want to speak to and through us and use us to touch other people by the spiritual gifts which he himself has graciously given us. And, um, you know, a few weeks back he used the example of of the contradance as an example of how oftentimes we allow um, our fears of other people or or looking foolish in front of other people as an excuse uh, to not practice our spiritual gifts. And, and I think today what I really wanted to focus on is a bit more this concept of how is it that in fact God, who has given us these spiritual gifts in our life, yet we as people so often are, are not able as Christians to draw upon these gifts that he has given us because you know, of, of either fear of failure or, or many other different fears that we might have. In 2 Timothy Uh, 1 verse 6, Paul exhorts Timothy, he says, stir up the gift that is in you by the laying on of hands. You know, there, there are gifts inside each and every one of us that the Holy Spirit wants to stir up in our lives so that we can act in faith when we hear the Spirit's voice. And it's up to us to respond to the Spirit's voice, to respond to the Spirit's call. And we've been, and Pastor C has been reflecting for several weeks now just about the difference between our kind of right brain and um, how we can rationalize and second guess every prompting we hear from the Spirit and not allow these gifts of the Spirit to be stirred up inside of us instead of just listening to the still small voice of God. And as, as I was um, meditating, I guess, now knowing that I was going to speak for the past a few weeks, Uh, One of the things that really came to me 
And, it, and it's an example that each and every one of us have seen over the course of our lifetime, and it actually comes from babies or infants. If you think about it, and even from little children, which Scripture refers to very often, uh, one of the principal reasons I think little children are able to learn exponentially faster than us as adults is in, in some way their right brain is not fully developed. So when they get certain promptings, they don't shut them down as immediately, and they're willing to experiment with those promptings. And I'll give you a couple examples. See, the reason babies are able to walk, at some point, you know, six, seven, eight months, a baby decides that they want to attempt to walk. And as they attempt to develop this particular um, developmental milestone of walking, which God created them to do, they fall over again and again, probably hundreds to thousands of times. But the fact that they continue to fall over again and again, their right brain hasn't kind of fully kicked in to discourage them from attempting to keep trying. And so they do continue to try over and over again, and at some point, several months later, they achieve the ability to walk, first maybe not very stably, but over time, unless you know, they were born with some physical deformity or something else, they learn to walk. And you can think about it the same way with talking. The types of sounds that they make those first few years of, of their life are completely unintelligible. But that doesn't necessarily discourage them from continuing to try. And ultimately, whether it's over, you know, several months to 18 months to a couple of years, they learn to talk in such a way that they can communicate with other people around them. And their inability to express themselves correctly doesn't stop them from attempting to communicate, particularly with their mother or their father. And I, I think that's just such an excellent picture of what God wants us to do as new Christians in terms of our ability to use our spiritual gifts. Because the fact that these babies are not allowed to be discouraged and they're able to reach this physical and mental developmental goal because of this fact, for us as, as Christians, God has given us spiritual gifts. And he has created us to, pe to be people who receive supernatural revelation and guidance from his spirit. And his desire is that we also achieve, just like in the, in the physical example I gave of, of infants, he wants us to achieve the proper spiritual developmental milestones in our lives as Christians. And so many of us adult Christians, we don't possess the same type of courage that we see from infants in that as we feel prompted by the Spirit, we don't necessarily always respond to the Spirit's promptings because we see a vision in our mind's eye of us falling on our face, of us not sounding intelligible to other people, of us not making sense, of us not being able to do so. And so God calls us, and he, and he stirs in our heart by means of his spirit through a, a, a voice or, or just through somebody else or something we read in the word. Somehow God speaks to us. And instead of stepping out in faith, we're more concerned about the outcome 
and how possibly we might fail. So we don't act upon the promptings of the Spirit because of this. We perhaps think we're going to look foolish, so we don't do that. And I think that's one of the principal characteristics, even in Scripture when it talks about being a little child, or even littler than a little child, I guess, an infant, is there is really not this sense. The right brain is not developed to that capacity where you can rationalize against what the Spirit is leading you to do. And in that sense, in spite, that's not to say babies and infants are not fallen, that's not what I mean, but they're not quite as susceptible to allow their reason to get in the way of the Spirit's call upon their lives. And um, we were called into our faith by God in order that we might grow and that we might grow spiritually. And he wants us to achieve these developmental milestones in our spiritual gifts. But in order to do that, I think it's very necessary, just like children, you're going to step out, you're going to hear from God, you're going to attempt to encourage somebody maybe. Maybe God's given you a gift of teaching, maybe he's given you some other gift of hospitality or whatever. And it's very possible that as you attempt to, to use your gifts, as you attempt to step out in faith, you, you perhaps may fall on your face many times. You may fail, but unless you try and unless you exercise these gifts then you, not, you also will not grow in this regard. And, um, and I think that's one of the main reasons is our fear of failure. And we kind of um, would like to somehow short-circuit the process and be spiritually mature in our gifts almost immediately upon salvation. And so we don't like this process of, of growth and trial and error and failure that I think is very natural to the Christian faith, especially when I read you know, so many of these great uh, men and women in Scripture who failed so many times, but God continued to use them as they were failing. And if you look at almost every single call of God, whether it's from Isaiah, from the Old Testament, each and every one of these people that were called by God felt very inadequate to the task that they were called. But that didn't mean that God couldn't continue to use them in their inadequacies and in their failures along the way. And as they continued to, to stumble and fall and trip along the way, God continued to use them to touch other people and to bless other people by means of his spirit. And, um, and I really do feel that that is why so often in life we don't step out in faith and we don't listen to God's voice. And um, so as I said, I really... And I, do, I don't know, I'm not a neurologist, and perhaps some of, some of you here who know a bit more about medicine, but I have a strange feeling that's the truth about babies, that their left brain and right brains may be much more equal. And um, they are so curious about everything. They want to know the world around them. They have this passion and desire for learning. If we had this same curiosity and passion and desire to know God that would allow us to step out in faith when we heard his voice without fear of failure, I believe we would so often grow in a much deeper manner and be able to use the gifts that God has given us to touch other people. But most of the time as adults, you know, and I could only imagine if we were in, in the infant's shoes, we would think, oh, wow, the last, you know, hundred times I attempted to walk, it didn't work, so I'm not going to try again, you know? And that's how we think. And perhaps the same could be said about when, when God prompts you to speak to somebody, it's so easy to rationalize his word away in our minds and not listen to him. 
An, an excellent example of this in, in, in Scripture, really, is in the feeding of the 5,000. And this particular miracle is the only miracle, other than the resurrection, which is in all four of the Gospels. But in, in this particular uh, miracle and the feeding of the 5,000, God chooses to use what the people have in order to perform the miracle. And so often that's the way God works in our lives. When he wants to bless others, when he wants to perform a miracle, when he wants to impart gifts, he, could, he can do that any way he chooses to, but so often he chooses to work in and through us and in our weaknesses and in our failure. And in this particular instance, he says to his disciples, he says, why don't you guys give them something to eat? in uh, Matthew 6, when the people are hungry. And of course, this leads to a, a bit of a crisis among his 12 disciples because they begin rationally with their right brain to try to figure out what, what this means. And, and a couple of them are thinking, perhaps Matthew or some of the more financial types among them, you know, well, even if we worked for, you know, several years worth of wages, I don't really see how we're going to feed this crowd. And... Um, you know, and each and every one of the disciples is, is probably dumbfounded at this point, not really understanding what, what Jesus is trying to communicate to them when he's asking them to give this crowd something to eat. And um, other disciples kind of decide they want to go to town and get their own food, let's just send them away, etc. But um, the interesting thing, Jesus responds to them in Matthew 6, 38, he says to them, you know, how many loaves of bread do you have? What do you have? Go and see. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm not really sure when he asks his disciples what... We know that their response is that there are five loaves and two fishes. And we know from looking at, at John 6 that these actually came from a little boy. But my question is, after listening to some of the other things the disciples just said, perhaps a few seconds before that, did the disciples themselves realize about the loaves of the fishes? Or was it actually the little boy who overheard the conversation, who might have been the only person with enough faith to realize that what he had actually could be used by God? I don't know. You know, maybe the little boy was just a few feet away and he says to the disciples, hey guys, I got something. Because they, it doesn't seem like they were in the mindset of even thinking that way to me when I read what they just said. You know, and that's just obviously a, a guess. But what, when we offer what we have to God, no matter how insignificant it is, and in this case it's just perhaps enough to feed one or two people, God is able to take our insignificant gifts or the gifts that we think are not significant, and he's able to multiply them far beyond what we on our own would be able to achieve. And... Um, you all know what happened next, and we all know this miracle that the Spirit is able to somehow multiply the small resources, the small gifts that they had in order to bless the entire multitude. And, and really, when you look at um, John 6, and, and you read some of um, what comes after this, you realize that, that the whole story wasn't even really about meeting this physical need of the crowd, even though in a sense it was because they were hungry. 
He then uses this to go on and talk about the bread of life and how Jesus is the bread of life, that if they eat, they will never grow hungry. Again, the bread of, his bread that was given to the world, that was broken for the world. And he uses this more to reveal who he is to others, which really is what so many of the miracles are all about. It's not about just some flashy show. Using even a lot of the supernatural gifts, which oftentimes we think, oh, it's about, I wish I could do these gifts because they're more flashy or they're more showy, all of these supernatural gifts that Jesus did were primarily about revealing himself to the world, his identity, who he was, the Savior of the world who had come to die for the world and to offer grace and salvation to those who believed in him. And that really was even the purpose of this particular miracle, so that when this little boy stepped out in faith and offered these loaves and these fishes, so that Jesus could perform this great miracle by multiplying food, what it really was about was about re revealing who God is and to the world. His grace, his mercy, his salvation. And um, one of the concepts of this fear of failure, I think, which, which um, and is closely related to this concept, which often gets in our way, is the concept of criticism, because we happen to be so critical as people, as people oftentimes of, of others, but I think perhaps even worse, we're often most self-critical of ourselves because Satan has convinced us, either because of our past or what we have done, that we are, are, are not worthy to receive God's grace, or he wants us to continue to beating, beating ourselves up for things in our lives. And so criticism, either self-criticism or criticism of others, so often gets in the way of us stepping out in faith and using our gifts. One of my favorite quotes of any, and I'd say politician, but politicians are not favorite people, but this one's been dead a long time, so I think it's a safer quote, comes from uh, Teddy Roosevelt. And um, the quote uh, was over 100 years old at this point, but it's, this is a Teddy, what Teddy Roosevelt says about critics. And I think there's a real profound truth here. He said, it's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and comes up short again and again, because there is no effort without error or shortcoming, but who knows the great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself for a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least he fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who knew neither victory nor defeat. I'd repeat this, because, but I think, hopefully, you get the point of what he says. See, he's contrasting the critic with the doer. It's so easy to sit and watch somebody else do something and criticize and pick them apart. 
their failings, their misgivings. And because we know this is such a natural human tendency, we believe everyone's doing the same thing to us, and so we're doing the same thing to ourselves. And, um, but, but the thing that, that, that Teddy Roosevelt here says, I think, so movingly and, and great is that when you're actually out there, it, stepping out in faith, in the arena, doing something, that's the only time that you can know the reward of high achievement. And, and if you do fail, at least you're going to fail while attempting to do something greatly. Whereas the critic is just there criticizing others, and he's actually never doing anything himself. You know? And so you could, you know, whether it's you could think of it in sports, you know, when you hear someone picking apart, you know, an, an athlete's performance, particularly in a championship, you have to think, well, these are the two best teams in a country of 300 million people, and they're the only two teams that made it to the final. So for people who don't practice that, to try to pick people apart just makes... And, and of course, he's using that attempt and that analogy to, to talk about it. But when it comes to using our spiritual gifts, there are so many critics, and we know there are so many critics, that it can lead us to doing nothing. Even when we are pretty convinced that it's actually the Holy Spirit that's talking to us and that it's telling us to do something. Because we're afraid of looking foolish. We know what the critics are going to say to us. Or maybe if we're honest with ourselves, maybe we are the people that are criticizing other people when they're using their gifts. And because we know we've criticized so many other people ourselves, we think everyone else is going to do the same too. It's so easy to become people who focus on faults, you know, faults of others, faults of our own. And there's definitely more than enough human weaknesses that we have in our flesh. And we have more than enough failings in our own strength, and Satan knows this, that it can be easy for us to just live in that place of self-criticism or criticism of others. And part of that is because we really just don't understand the grace that we have in Christ. But once we begin to understand the grace and the freedom we have in Christ more clearly, then that gives us a lot more freedom to respond to these prompts of the Spirit in our life because we're not always as worried what others think about us. We know what God thinks about us, and that's what really matters. And because we know we are loved and accepted by God, because we know that God thinks we're valuable enough that he paid the price that he paid on the cross for our sins, then when we hear the Spirit saying, why don't you step out in faith? Why don't you use this gift? We're actually not as afraid to do so because we know the opinion of the one who really counts and what he thinks of us. And not necessarily what even we think of ourselves or others think of us that really matters. And... Um, that's one of Satan's key ways of getting us to not listen to God's voice, to not respond to God's voice. Listening to critics, the fear of critics. Even if we're not critical ourselves, how often do we sit and eavesdrop on other people that are critical of others? And so we have that so in the back of our mind any time the Spirit begins to speak to us. You know, I think of the parable of the talents in Luke 19, and that's the exact reason why the bad servant, unfaithful servant, did not use his 
talent or gift. Because Jesus doesn't speak quite as much about gifts himself in the four Gospels. That's a lot more, you know, in the Apostle Paul and later in Scripture. But he does have this parable of the talent. And you're all very familiar with the parable, I'm certain. But the master who goes away on a long journey and gives several individuals these talents... His desire is that the talents actually be used by the people he gave them to. And the one person who did not use their talents, what did he do? He buried it and he said, well, I I knew you were going to be a really critical and mean person and you were out to get me. So I just thought, you know what, because you were going to criticize me and I knew it already from the beginning, I just chose to do nothing. And I think so often that's the way we treat spiritual gifts, you know? We think... You know, others are going to criticize me if I actually do something with my gifts. I don't even know myself if I'm going to do well, so I'm just not going to use it, and I'm just going to throw it in the ground, and it'll be good. But even though there's some distinction to the rewards of everybody else, every single one of them, he said, good servant, because they took the gift they had, and they tried to do something with it. And some of them were a little more successful than others. Some may have done ten, some may have done two, some may have done five. But there was some degree of multiplication of the gifts. You know, but I don't know how they got from one to ten. They may have failed many, many times along the way. We don't know how long a time period this was. But the point is they took the gift and they did something with it. And I believe that's what God wants us to do. He gives each and every one of us gifts. And I think as Pastor Steve made very clear in the last several weeks is that we all have been given some gifts. And he's gone on to many scriptures to to explain that, that every single one of us do have some gifts from God. And he wants to activate these gifts in our lives. And we need to be people that are willing to listen to the Spirit and have these gifts stirred up within us. And not be people who would, you know, bury our gifts in the sand or fail to listen to his promptings because of our own inner insecurities or fears or inability to understand the grace that God has shown us. And the the strange thing about this parable of the talents, really, is that the response of this man is such a, a human fallen response. And it's very almost Dar- Darwinistic, I guess, if, if you say, you know. This, this all, you know, survival of the fittest, you know. God's out to get me. If I don't do it just right, just perfectly, the, he's going to um, beat me down. And it's really a failure to understand the actual grace and mercy of God who actually does want us to use what he has given us. He's not out there to beat us down when we fail but he rather does want us to use what he has given us and to try. And um, another really great example, I think, of this critics can be seen in, in the story of Matthew 14. And we can turn to this, verse 22. See, this is the story of Peter walking upon the water. Or Jesus first walking upon the water and then Peter walking upon the water to Jesus. And the interesting thing is how many of us have heard sermons about this where somehow Peter becomes the center of this sermon and how Peter sank and how 
You know, we, we like to pick Peter apart. How he somehow failed to have faith, because Jesus says, oh, you of little faith. How, how he allowed the circumstances and taking his eyes off Jesus to allow him to sink. But I'd like to look at this a little bit differently. See, the thing about Peter is, and the way I see it, there are 12 people in the boat that saw Jesus walking on the water. And only one person had even enough faith, because Jesus has little faith, that he actually wanted to walk out to Jesus. And um, it said they were all afraid, and Jesus' first response to them is to calm them down. And he says, do not be afraid, it is I. And um, Peter's response in Matthew 14, 28, I think is really great. He says to him, Lord, if it really is you, command me to come to you on the water. See, when, when the Spirit prompts our heart or moves our heart to do something, even if it seems outrageous, and I can only imagine, you know, that's pretty, pretty crazy what Peter's trying to do here, you can actually engage and speak to the Spirit because that's God. Not only does he speak to us, he wants us to speak and communicate to him. And so Peter says, if this is really you, call me, command me to come out to you on the water. And I think asking for that second confirmation when you feel touched or led by the Spirit is actually a very positive thing and probably a very biblical thing, is seeking, was this really God that I heard from? Is this really the Spirit who is talking to me? This seems a bit incredible what I feel like I'm being called to do. And so you follow up with the Spirit. And, um, of course, Jesus' response in verse 29 of Matthew 14 is, Come! So Jesus actually is glad that Peter's asking him this. You know, he's like, that's great, Peter. Come on out here with me. And, um, see, the thing... And, and I've seen a lot of, I guess, exegesis of this passage where it's easy to criticize Peter. But I don't know of any other human being that's ever walked upon the water other than Peter, right? And I think that gets to a bit the heart of Teddy Roosevelt's quote is, Peter knows what it's like to be able to walk on water. You know, the, the rewards of this achievement of, of attempting something because of his calling. And he may also know what it's like to fail while attempting to do something great, because he was failing while he was sinking. The people on the boat will never know that. But the incredible thing, of course, is in verse 30, when he does sink, what does he say? Save me. He's still talking to God. He knows who's going to save him. See, if he had no faith at all, he wouldn't cry out to God when he's sinking. He believes Jesus can save him in the midst of this storm. He's walking on the water. I don't know for how long. He begins to sink, but he knows who the only person who can save him in this situation is. It's Jesus. And somehow he's able to have the presence of mind to look to Jesus' hand as Jesus reaches down his hand and to take his hand. And then I imagine they must have walked on the water together back to the boat. He also knows what it's like to walk on the water holding Jesus' hand after having failed. 
And I really think this is what, even though it's not specifically talking about spiritual gifts, I think it's so applicable because it is, does relate to how we communicate with God, how we can ask him to reconfirm something a second time. If when we're attempting to step out in faith as we hear his voice, we fail, we can still communicate with God and say, hey, God, I'm, I thought you wanted me to do this. It's not working out. Please help me now. I need your help. And these are the kind of conversations we can have with God as he wants us to use our gifts. I hope I'm communicating. (laughs) Another story I also love, and part of it is because it also has to do with this critic principle, and in this one we're even more critical, is Thomas in uh, John 20. And actually, many of us refer to Thomas as doubting Thomas. Now, I think that's more, says more about us than it says about Thomas, that we would refer to one of the 12 disciples <laughs> by a critical adjective. When really, you know, it was the faithfulness of these 12 disciples to listen to Jesus and the Great Commission after Jesus' resurrection, which is the only reason the church was able to exist in the first place and is the reason most of us are here this morning worshiping is their faithfulness to, to do what God actually told them to do after he died. But, you know, people refer to Thomas as the doubting Thomas. <clears throat> and if, if you look at John chapter 20, it, there's this instance where Jesus himself, the risen Christ, appears to the ladies, he appears to the other ten disciples, he appears on various occasions over the course of the four Gospels, but somehow Thomas is the odd one who was left out of the first series of appearances. And um, we can turn there if you want to uh, John chapter 20. And, you know, I don't really know I know what it's like to feel like when I'm left out of something. Have you guys ever been left out of something? Do you ever feel something's not fair? And so sometimes I wonder when it's saying that, unless I, Thomas of course says in John chapter 20, let me turn here. Unless I put my hand, right, in his hands, And in his sides, I will not believe. In verse 25, because everyone else is saying, we've seen the Lord, he appeared to us. And Thomas says, you know, unless I can put my hands in the actual nail prints of his hands and put my finger into his sides, I will not believe. And um, how easy, of course, is it to look at Thomas and be critical when most of us, if we had been left out, of these amazing resurrection appearances, and we were the only ones who were left out of these amazing resurrection appearances, that must feel pretty terrible, I would think, right? And so I don't know if it's his lack of faith or perhaps his offense at being the only one left out or what it is that motivated him to say what he said, but I could certainly identify with being angry or upset or frustrated that I was the only one who didn't get to witness this miracle. 
And in that anger or frustration, you could probably say any number of things. Right? But the reason he was upset is why? He wanted to see Jesus with his own eyes. He wanted to touch Jesus' hands with his own hands, his side, with his own side. And um, so, of course, he makes this request to God in almost a challenging way. And if you look throughout Scripture, there's so many other challenges, you know, where people like Gideon, when he's about to perform this incredible, you know, God's about to perform the deliverance through God, sets these fleeces up, does all sorts of things. There are a lot of instances in Scripture where God is actually challenged to do something before people will listen to him. And that's kind of the demand that Thomas says. He says, well, yeah, I'll believe you, but not until you do this for me. And I really would like to, to put my, hand, my hands in your hands and my hand in your side. And in a sense, this is a little bit like what Peter's doing when once again he says, if it's really you, God, give me this second confirmation. Thomas, although his is with a little bit more doubt in the initial one, says, well, if you really, really did rise again, this is how I want you to prove it to me, God. But at least there's a dialogue going on between Thomas, right, and God. And I think that's what we need to be like when we are having doubts, because often we will have doubts. The circumstances, the tragedies, the events of this life may at times cause our faith to weaken and may cause us to have doubts, and we need to be real and honest enough with ourselves. See, God isn't surprised about our doubts, because he's sovereign and he knows what we're thinking. So we're not going to fool God. And God is not surprised by Thomas's doubts here. And the really great thing, when Jesus appears in, in John 20, 27, it doesn't say that Jesus has already knows what Thomas said the other time. He doesn't say it again a second time. Jesus actually comes to Thomas and says, hey, by the way, why don't you put your hands in my hands and, and, and into my side? And then he says, don't be unbelieving, but believe. And unlike everyone else, he's actually not critical of Thomas. He's encouraging Thomas. Right? He's saying, believe, Thomas. It is me. And um, Thomas's response, of course, is, what does he say? He says, my Lord and my God. And um, you can look through all four of the Gospels, but no one else calls Jesus God. They may call him Messiah, they call him Rabbi, they call him Teacher. There's no other place in the Gospels where Jesus is called God by anybody. Not Son of God, you know, Son of God or some other thing. He calls him God. And really, it's almost the only instance in all of the New Testament where that happens. See, from that point on, Thomas knew who Jesus was. And he knew for the rest of his life. And perhaps this doubt or failure in this one instance was the path that he needed to take to get there. But so many of us are not willing to take certain paths and listen to the Spirit as he prompts us to use gifts because we don't want to fail along the way. See, humility goes a long way in allowing us to hear from the Spirit. Because our lives are broken, our lives are sinful, and really, in and of ourselves, we don't really have that much that could bless other people or benefit other people. 
And that's why in Paul, in, in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, talks about us having this treasure in jars of clay. Because the emphasis is, isn't on us. See, we kind of see things so twisted that we think, well, I, there are a lot of defects in the jar. So, so God can't use me to help somebody else. But it's not about the jar. It's not about our gifts. It's about the person inside of the jar, the spirit of, of God who created heaven and earth and who wants to give his grace and love and mercy to those around us, through us. And so it's not about the jar. And that's why when we understand that it's not about us, when we understand that it's not about our failings, about our deficiencies, about everything that we're lacking, we actually are in a place of identity, knowing who we are in Christ, that it's more about him than it is about us, where when the Spirit prompts us to do something and to use our gifts, we're in a position where we can listen to the Spirit and step out in that faith. Because it isn't about us. And sure, we may fall down, and sure, we don't have enough you know, in and of ourselves to bless those around us. But through the Spirit who lives in us, he has more than enough power to touch those around us in spite of our many failures and our many weaknesses. And um, as, as, as Jesus himself said, you know, those who believe in me, out, out of you will flow rivers of living water. Not because we're wonderful, but because the Spirit is in us and wants to touch those God wants to use our lives to touch those around us. And, and when we do die to ourselves and realize these just fundamental, basic Christian principles, it allows us to step out in faith and use these gifts. And um, I just have a couple more examples because I don't want to go over too much. But it's so easy to harden our hearts and not to listen to the voice of the Spirit. And I think of the, the passage in Hebrews 3 and 4 where repeatedly the author of Hebrews you know, says, today, if you hear his voice, the Spirit, who is speaking to them again today, do not harden your hearts as you did in the desert. And he keeps going back to this, you know, and mentioning how their hardening of their hearts did not allow them to enter into the rest, the promised land that God had for them. And at the end of this very long passage, a couple chapters where he's just repeating this over and over again in various ways, and, and, and mentioning once again that there is this promised rest for those of us who are in Christ if we only listen to the Spirit, it finishes... Uh, in Hebrews 4.16, he says, Therefore, let us come boldly before the throne of grace that we might obtain mercy and grace in our time of need. See, God does want to listen to us. He does want to hear us. And so when we hear the Spirit's voice, the, the whole prompting he's saying earlier in those two chapters of Hebrews, today when you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. When we hear the Spirit prompting us to act out, to use our gifts, instead of listening to the critics or listening to ourselves, we need to be acting out in faith, knowing, of course, that we do have access to the throne of grace, that God does want to talk with us. That's, 
And that's why I think these examples of Thomas and Peter and their journey and their so-called partial failures along the way are so great because all along the way, as they are failing, they're communicating with Jesus. And I think that's all the Spirit wants from us, is He wants us as we fail and step out in faith and do something to look to Jesus all along the way. To say, you know, Lord, I believe, help me in my unbelief. I'm having a hard time here. I thought you were telling me to go speak to this person. I thought you were telling me to use my gifts. I thought you were telling me that, that this was something I should be doing. It doesn't seem to be working. Why? And oftentimes I think the most unlikely people hear from God. We had heard of the little boy Samuel in the Old Testament, but I can think, and this is my final example I'm going to finish with, of King Josiah. I don't know how many of you are familiar with this great Jewish king, and Scripture speaks of him, of course, as one of the greatest, if not the greatest, king in the Old Testament. But when you look at the history of this boy king, um, his grandfather, Manasseh, you know, was... Just a horrendous man. He committed, they committed, you know, human sacrifice. They, it says he made people pass, you know, through the fire. He, um, even with his, some of his own grandchildren and people related to him, there was all sorts of witchcraft and sorcery being practiced in Israel. And um, bales everywhere. You know, Manasseh was a complete and total disaster. And then you look at Manasseh's son, Amon, and he was almost equally as bad. And, and when you read um, 2 Chronicles 33 about Amon's life, he was so hated by his servants that he was actually killed by them in retribution. And, and in retribution, they decide, you know, you know what, let's put this little eight-year-old boy as king now after killing the father. Maybe they thought he'd be a puppet king and they could manipulate him behind the scenes. I don't know. But these, these are the examples that this little eight-year-old king had growing up. You know, Manasseh and Amon, who both practiced, you know, all sorts of human sacrifices and, and don't, don't seem to, just seem to have been, you know, worse kings than many of the neighboring nations. And so he comes from a circumstance where he has almost no good examples around them, even the prophet Jeremiah, who was a prophet at about that time, didn't really start his ministry too much until uh, he was 21, until, until the time Josiah was about 21. But somehow, in spite of this, God begins to speak to Josiah, in spite of his background, in spite of all the circumstances, and I'm, he must have known what had happened to his father his father getting murdered by others. It must have been such a bad, terrible atmosphere in the palace at the time. But little by little, he begins to, you know, clean the temple. They somehow discover the book of the law. And he begins to establish some of the right practices. As he reads scripture, he's convicted. And of course, it all ends with, it says at the very end of this entire process, which took several years, attempting to turn the nation to God. It says that they finished with the Passover, which is even more remarkable because that obviously shows that they hadn't even been celebrating the Passover for 50 years. And that was their whole reason to exist as a nation, was this gratitude to God and what had happened in Exodus. 
But my point is that God speaks and uses oftentimes the most unexpected people. (laughs) This, This king who has no examples, really. But somehow, in spite of the fact, he's able to still listen to God. And that's just, I think, a remarkable testimony to how God can speak to and through anybody, no matter the obstacles and circumstances, if we open our our ears and our heart to him. And um, so I just wanted to finish once again with Teddy Roosevelt's quote to leave you with thinking about this so that we wouldn't really listen to the critic that is inside of us or around us, but would actually attempt to step out in faith when we hear God's and the Spirit prompting us to act. It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done better. The credit belongs to the man who is in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and comes up short again and again, because there's no effort without error or shortcoming, but who knows the great enthusiasms the great devotions, who spends himself for a worthy cause, who at his best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least he fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who knew neither victory nor defeat. May the Lord bless you all. Uh, bow our heads for just a minute and if uh, I don't know if Dean's here or someone who could lead us in worship but Father thank you that you would continue to speak to us from your word and by your spirit and that as we hear you uh, we live if we only hear your word but we seek to do it we step out on it even though we might fail Teach us, Lord, to use whatever gift you've given us, gifts of encouragement, service, teaching, illustration, Lord. We ask you also for prophetic gifts of encouragement that we might comfort and bring new life into difficult situations. Father, thank you that you'd stir us That word would be living and active in us. So, Father, today we close the service uh, offering, as you always do, uh, to give us an opportunity for praying. We, We need people to agree with us in prayer, to stand with us, having done all to stand. And so, if you have a prayer need today, if you have a concern, whether on this subject or on something else, come. Uh, that, that's what the body of Christ does. It, it, it encourages and builds up. We ask our prayer ministers to come and elders be available after the service. But we thank you, Lord. Let's stand and maybe sing a, a closing song. If you'd like a special prayer, please feel free to come forward, and we'd love to pray with you. I'm trading my sorrows I'm trading my shame 
just a minute on your way out and share God's love with somebody. Turn as you leave and just share God's love with somebody perhaps new. Introduce yourself to those as you go. If you'd like prayer, we'll be up here in the front.